evidence and answers. There are two revolutions that changed the course of modern history, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. One was a moral revolution that led to freedom, while the other was built of humanist ideas of enlightenment and has led to tyranny and bondage. Is America headed towards a French Revolution? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucharan. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Oz Guinness, will conclude an interview regarding the future of the United States and what must happen to turn our country back into the right direction. And the first word to Abraham when he was called was negative. Leave. Leave. Break with your culture, your country, your culture, your kin, as the Jews say. You break with them. We're a counterculture. And Abraham, Moses, our Lord, we as followers of Jesus, we should be countercultural. And certainly the way we, families and sex and relationships, and it all starts in the home. You know, Oz, you write in your book, and there are several statements, quite profound statements that I was underlining throughout your book. But, you know, in the introduction, you state the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, give us the Magna Carta of Humanity. It offers the deepest and most comprehensive foundations for human freedom ever given to humanity. Now, a lot of us, you know, when we're reading through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I mean, those are chapters we try to skim over real quickly and get through as we're doing our year through the Bible. But they have lay a profound foundation, as you state, for ethics, morality, and human freedom. Explain that for us. Well, you know, the Reformation rediscovered it. In the 17th century, following the Reformation, is called by historians the biblical century. And there was so much fascination, even with people like Thomas Hobbes, who was an atheist, with what they called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, this new commonwealth of freedom that you see outlined in Exodus. Now, the trouble is, that was the Reformation at its best. But since then, many of us who are evangelicals, I'm an evangelical, unashamed, despite all the tarnishing currently, I'm an unashamed evangelical. But we have to say that many evangelicals spiritualized and personalized Exodus. In other words, what an incredible story of freedom, Passover and so on. Well, it's a prefiguring of my salvation, your salvation. In other words, it's private and spiritual, but in Exodus, it isn't. So there are 650,000 men, who knows how many children and women, but at least you have more than a million strong. And this was the way they're called to live freely and justly together. And that's what the Reformation wrestled with. So the Reformation looked at, say, covenant. The three things about it, they're incredible. One, everything in the covenant depends on freely chosen consent. Three times it says in Exodus, all that the Lord says, we will do. And the covenant's not ratified until they say that. Now, that's the origin of the wonderful notion of the consent of the governed. It's biblical. Oh, you take something else you were hinting at almost earlier, Pat. The covenant is a matter of a morally binding pledge. It's not a contract. The contract narrow and legal. 
You take a marriage covenant, till death do us part. It's lasting and comprehensive. And the Hebrew covenant is the same. Now, in other words, it's promise-keeping. We forget that. When people keep their word and keep their promises, they're true. You said we've lost the notion of truth. You're exactly right. When you have a high view of truth and people make promises and keep promises, high truth means high trust, and high trust means high freedom and low control and low surveillance. Now, you take the Chinese. They don't trust their citizens at all. So you have two billion cameras following people everywhere in China. But the Hebrew covenant has maximum freedom because of maximum trust and maximum promise keeping. Now, of course, there's a snag there. The Lord keeps his promise and his covenant, and we don't. So you have to consider what happens when it breaks down and needs to be restored. Yes, you state that. In America, and also in the human heart, one of the greatest values we cherish is freedom. And we've been talking a lot about that in this interview, but you state freedom's greatest enemy is freedom itself. Freedom pursued in the wrong way too often ends up in serfdom rather than liberty. Explain that statement for us. Well, it's a paradox, and you can see it's the reason why free societies in history very rarely last. You know, one explanation people have given is that freedom depends on structures. You have to have a good framework, good laws that make for good freedom. But they're not, freedom's not only a matter of the structure, it's a matter of the spirit. Now, a structure you could lay down like a constitution or a law, and you can keep it for hundreds of years. But the spirit of freedom, you can't do that. You have to do it from generation to generation, as I was saying earlier. Or you take the little notion that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. People immediately say, oh, yes, that's true. You've got to be on the lookout for your enemies. But as you know, and I know well, the deepest problem is not outside enemies. It's my internal problems, sin. So, you know, at the heart of the statement of freedom at the end of Deuteronomy, you know, Moses says to them, I put before you the curse and the blessing, death and life. Therefore, choose life. But there are little words halfway through the paragraph where he says, if your heart turns you away. In other words, all the problems begin in the heart. And that's why the heart of freedom is literally the freedom of the heart. And you have to teach people to become free. So the good old evangelical thing of inviting people into your heart is actually right. You know, as the rabbis say, it's incredible but the Lord who is everywhere except one place, he never invades the human heart. And of course, that's behind, say, Holman Hunt's great picture based on Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, because even the Lord does not coerce our hearts. Roger Williams, you know, the great champion of religious freedom, he would say, God never rapes the conscience. Well, that's very profound, which means that the heart is the secret of freedom. That's where freedom has to be freed through the gospel. And that's where freedom has to be cultivated as we grow and change and so on. And that's where freedom has to be handed on carefully or our hearts will turn us free and it'll all go wrong again. Yes. Well, one of the things you state, not only in this book, but in your other books as well, is that you have to have the right definition of freedom. 
what our founding fathers meant by freedom. When people think of freedom today, what we're taught is freedom is to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. You state, actually, that's, that's, that's a right. very dangerous definition of freedom, not the freedom that our founding fathers of the Bible talks about. Explain to us no, absolutely. the right definition of freedom. Right by that. Well, you know, the basic error is the one that Lord Acton described, and he's the greatest thinker about freedom probably ever. Uh, and he said freedom is not the permission to do what you like. It's the power to do what you ought. Now, modern people put it, they try to be a little more sophisticated and say, well, you do what you like so long as you do no harm. But actually, that doesn't work either, because you can see today that sets the harm principle over against the choice principle. So part of the problem of the cancel culture is that people say, oh, you're harming me. I feel dissed. I feel offended. I feel hurt by what that's being said. And so you can cry harm and shut down everything, including free speech. But on the other hand, the people who take the choice principle, do what you like, so long as you don't hurt anyone else, they often end up hurting themselves because this unrestrained freedom with sex or drugs or alcohol leads to obsessions and leads to addictions. So the bizarre thing, if you look at America, I do as a foreigner, visitor, this is, quote, the land of the free. But you've got more people in recovery groups and more people addicted mm. than any other country in the world because freedom's gone wrong. And Americans don't have a realistic view of freedom. Freedom requires truth. Freedom requires character. And freedom requires a way of life that fits freedom. So the challenge today is, Americans, do you believe in the right view of freedom? And are you pursuing it in the way that freedom itself requires? Uh, that's wonderfully stated. You say freedom is the power to do what you ought. Now, moral law code or universal moral law code and character development was taken out of our public schools. So how are people to know what they ought to do and what is that structure we need that allows freedom to grow? And how do we regain that? Well, there is incredible confusion anyway today, but as I said earlier, you think of the two institutions that are failing on that. So we cannot look to the public schools and followers of Jesus, whose sons and daughters in the public schools, really have to keep them ahead of the game and really up with all the ideas and lifestyles they're going to meet so that they're not sucked into that. But we do have still mostly control of our families. And families is even deeper than schooling in terms of passing on rights and wrongs and true and false and all those things. But we've got to do it carefully. You know, so to be in the world but not of it today is really a full-time task. To recognize the world, you've got to resist because it's all sorts of things. I mean, elsewhere I've pointed out to people, and I like to do this to Asians, you know, because they're rapidly modernizing. They can't understand why the West has caved in, including much of the Western church. And I say, well, look, take consumerism. You've got a hundred cereals and granolas in a supermarket. Everything, that's trivial, everything from there is a preference. Which one do you like? What's your choice? Well, that consumerism 
putting in an emphasis on choice and preference, goes everywhere. It goes right up to our theology. You know, I remember a man saying to me, of course, I put a lot of love on my plate. But then he said, but hell, hell no. You think of the <laughs> pastor last year who said we should unhitch the Old Testament. You mentioned Leviticus. You know, a lot of people don't read Leviticus. It's difficult. No, we all like, say, 1 Corinthians 13 or the Gospel of John. But Leviticus, no, leave it out. No. You know, as you've got, we've got a culture in the church of consumerism, of preference, of choice, of pick and choose. Now, you add all that up, it's a crisis of authority. We say Jesus is Lord, and we say he puts his stamp on the scriptures as his authority, but we don't show it. The American church is suffering a crisis of authority. Yes, in your book, you state there are seven great uh, building blocks to build a free and responsible society. And I think chapter one is the point that you make there is that of authority. And one of the things you pointed out in the church, you know, the church is next to the family to be the defender and proclaimer of truth, to be the defender of God's truth and God's moral law and to be the teacher of that. But in your assessment, how is the evangelical church doing in, in, in that task? Absolutely appallingly. Nothing makes me, I mean, you've got a, a, an immense double crisis. You've got the American crisis, which we've been talking about largely, but to you and me, that's second to the crisis in the Christian church, and that's sadder and equally profound. Now, the sadness here is, if you think, you know, for 200 years, we faced theological liberalism. We might call it revisionism. And almost all evangelicals have stood firm and faithful, untouched by the ravages of Protestant liberalism. But now, with the cultural Marxism and the justice stuff, and with the sexual revolution, the LGBTQ and all that, we're caving into these at an incredible rate. Or put another way, evangelicals had a faulty worldview. So up till the 1950s, early 60s, really up the early 70s, evangelicals were what's called privatized. Their faith was privately engaging, publicly irrelevant, a very poor way of entering the public square. But then suddenly, with the rise of moral majority in 1975 and all that, many evangelicals realized that was disastrous to have a privatized faith. They needed to get involved, but many swung to the opposite extreme. They were politicized, where politics was the be-all and end-all. But now, following the Trump administration, and leave him out for a second, but just the way evangelicals supported him, now people think that to be an evangelical is to be pro-Trump. And some evangelicals are so politicized that their faith is understood as purely political. And to me, what makes me really angry is you then see evangelicals who disagree with that, who refer to evangelicalism in political terms only, whereas truly, I love the notion of evangelical, the people of the good news. We want to be defined by the good news of Jesus and live and believe as closely to that as we can. And the word evangelical is far deeper than the word Catholic or the word orthodox or the capital O. And yet today, even that has been tarnished almost beyond repair 
and you have ex-evangelicals, people defecting and deconstructing and all this nonsense. They've lost confidence in the gospel. Yes, awesome. This is a big question here, but how do we solve that issue in the church? How can we turn the tide in the church? Well, Pat, first of all, we need revival and we need reformation. And as you know, well, all the great revivals and reformation begin in prayer. You know, as the people of God, as we see in the Old Testament, as we see down through history, crying out, Lord, have mercy on us. We can't do it. We're not wise enough. We're not strong enough. We have screwed it royally. Forgive us, dear Lord. We have tarnished your name and stained your reputation. We're the ones because of whom the standing of the name of the Lord in the West is in such a disrepute. And so we've got to ask the Lord for his forgiveness and plead with him for revival and reformation. Now, my wife is a great woman of prayer. I am encouraged the fact that partly through COVID and partly through some of the other crises you and I have been talking about, there is a much greater understanding of prayer and an urgency in prayer. I've been to Korea several times and been to Hong Kong and Asia many, many times, having grown up there. But, you know, our Korean brothers and sisters... They're modern in the church, like we are. But boy, do they still pray. And they turn up at 5 a.m. for prayer meetings. I mean, I I confess I couldn't do that. But they have sustained collective prayer. And yet we, many Christians in the West, we're like functional atheists. We're almost as secularist as the the atheists next door to us. Mm. We believe in prayer and the supernatural and these things in our heads. But we don't show it in practice, and we need revival and reformation. Yes, I think you stated uh, several times, and I have my students listening and watching several of your presentations, but you, you often state, we as Christians need to get our house in order first. If we expect the rest of the culture to return to God, we need to get our house in order first. To put it mildly, <laughs> but we can't wait to get our house in order before we, you know, stand up and speak out in the culture. You know, one thing I I don't know about in Hawaii, Pat, but in in much of America where I've traveled more recently in the mainland, people are saying, Christians are saying to me, well, the early church wasn't terribly involved. You know, they were just faithful and keep their heads down. Right. And I say, Mm -hmm. wait a minute. The early church couldn't. They had no freedom to move under the Roman Empire. It was a dictatorship. But the American Republic, built through the Reformation on the Exodus Revolution, is a covenantal constitutional society where every citizen is responsible for every citizen. So the idea that Christians can just cop out and say we're in exile, these are terrible results. All, there's so much faulty thinking. So yes, we've got to pray and put the, our own house in order. But we've got to stand up and speak out in terms of the Republic because this is a crucial moment. Unfortunately, as you stated, Christians have privatized their faith, and a lot of the sermons you hear are about your personal walk with God. And, and you also stated that we have a faulty worldview, that we see that Christianity only applies to our personal life and our personal walk with God and family, when indeed... Christianity is a worldview that addresses all arenas of God's creation. Uh, Explain that a little bit for us, and how is it that pastors and teachers can teach their people that Christianity 
as Francis Schaeffer and others have said, you know, it's an all-embracing worldview. No, clearly it is in the Scripture, flowing from the sovereignty of God over creation and the whole of life. The Lord is concerned with everything. And the notion of calling, which I've written on too, you know, it means everyone, everywhere, in everything they do. In other words, it's not just spiritual or when we're in church. It's the lawyer in the law practice, the teacher in the high school. It's the computer scientist, you know, in the whatever he's doing and so on. It's everyone, everywhere, and everything. That's what makes the Lordship of Christ real and makes us salty and light-bearing in our culture. You know, the scandal of the American church, the scandal, I'm saying it bluntly, this is the last Western country where Christians are still a huge majority, by far the biggest community. And yet, we have tiny groups like our, like our friends, the Jews, 2% of America, but they punch well above their weight, intellectually, financially, culturally, incredibly influential in America. And we who are huge in numbers are uninfluential. Or you have people we disagree strongly, like the sexual revolutionary advocates. They're tiny. Look at the influence they have. Where are we called to be salt and light everywhere? We've let the Lord down badly. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Os Guinness, a prolific author and I believe one of the premier Christian statesmen of our time. We've been speaking about his book, The Magna Carta of Humanity here, just published in May. But not only this book, uh, you can tell we've been touching on his other books as well, Unspeakable, Time for Truth, The Call, and others. So you, you'll want to read the books that he has published. Well, Oz, it's been a great interview. We could go on for a few hours on this. But I guess to sum it up in your book, you ask the question, what will it take to make America great again? I ask you that question as we summarize this interview here today. Sum it up for us. What will it take to make America great again? Well, I only raised that one, as you know, Pat, because the former president, make America great again, and the current president, we need to restore the soul of America. But neither of them, this to me is the important point, neither of them really said what made America great in the first place. Right. So we've got to choose for the best of the American Revolution, recognizing the worst that needs forgiveness, like slavery and racism, but understanding the best of it and how it can be restored today. Because as you know, I argue in the book that that biblical view is the once and future key to freedom. In other words, it unlocks the best understanding of 1776, so we need it to understand where we came from and should be again, but equally importantly, it gives a view of freedom and justice and community for the human future. And at the incredible moment we are in global history, on the verge of singularity and stuff like that, the idea that the Bible gives us the once and future key to freedom should get us as followers of Jesus off the back foot. No more defensiveness. We're not fearful. We're not insecure. The gospel is not only good news, it's the best news ever. So time to move out. And I'm sure your good people, through your wonderful work, Pat, are doing that. And hopefully we'll see it across Hawaii and across all the states in America. 
It's great words from Dr. Oz Guinness here. And Oz, if people want more information on you and, and to read some of the material you've done and know your schedule and where you're going, where can they get more information? Well, you can see a lot more on my website, ozguinness.com. And two N's in Guinness like the beer. <laughs> yes, fantastic. Uh, well, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Oz Guinness, prolific author and a premier Christian statesman of our time. So, Oz, we thank you and your busy schedule for making time with us here at Evidence and Answers. Thank you, Pat. I enjoyed my visit to Hawaii immensely, and I would wish you God bless in all you're doing. Thank you. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, once again, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.